In this special pre-release episode of 2000 Books, Scott Birkin gives us a sneak peek of his upcoming book, Dance of the Possible. Scott and I talk about four ways to get better ideas and make them a reality. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs every single week. And I'm your host and former computer engineer turned entrepreneur, Manny Vaya. So this one is a special episode because this is the first published interview on Scott's brand new book, Dance of the Possible, which will be hitting the stands on March 15th. Scott Birkin is a best-selling author and popular speaker on creativity, philosophy, culture, and business. Scott has published six awesome books, including Making Things Happen and The Myths of Innovation. Today, we're talking about this exciting new seventh book, which is coming out on March 15th called Dance of the Possible, the mostly honest, completely irreverent guide to creativity. Scott, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. All right. Let's talk about this book and let's talk about the genesis, the story behind the book, your personal story, your business story, and what led you to writing the book. So this is my seventh book. Uh, I've been I've been writing books for a long time and, and running, uh, making a living from the books and from speaking. And many of the books I write about or I've written about are about ideas and how they work. And I wrote a very popular book in 2007 called The Myths of Innovation that took on the subject of managing ideas and entrepreneurship and all of the common misnomers that are very popular but that are dangerous and what the true stories behind some of those ideas was. And in doing research for that book, I learned a lot about the truths about creative thinking and common mistakes that people make. And I knew at some point I wanted to come back and write a book that was more strictly focused on the process of coming up with ideas, developing them into concepts, and then figuring out how to execute on them and deliver them to the world. So this is sort of a sequel to that book. And it's a subject that I've been fascinated by for a long time. And I'm really excited to finally have a book that's focused primarily on this singular but very important topic. Yeah, absolutely. And so Dance of the Possible, we're talking about how how creative ideas really come to life. And uh, there's, you know, one of the things that really spoke to me as I was reading the book was the idea of how, you know, initially when we start off, uh, the ideas are all over the place. We diverge for a while. And then at some point, they start to converge. And then again, it diverges and again, it converges. And this was to me for a long time, very frustrating as an entrepreneur, as, uh, you know, as someone who's, who, who has to deal with ideas on a regular basis. What I've always hoped was, was for somehow I could just start from some con- divergent set of ideas and then converge to one idea. But I never found that rhythm, that groove. But now I'm actually much more at ease with it now that I know this is the way it works. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's one of these truths that somehow we really want to believe that when you're developing something new, that there's a formula that we can follow. And a lot of books and, and courses are sold on this premise that just follow these six steps and you'll have a billion dollar business or this is the way to come up with a patentable idea. But if you dig into the history of the development of any idea or any corporation, any organization, if you actually read the history of how those ideas developed, there's this natural process of expansion, of coming up with, oh, I could try it this way, I could do it that way, and then at some point of convergence where it has to shrink back down. Oh, okay, the business is just going to focus on these three things, and we're going to set this price for things. So there's this natural 
what I call in the book a dance of moving between trying to find more ideas and more alternatives, and then you have to move the other way at some point to confining and constraining and narrowing things down in order to get anything done and release it into the world. So that process of of growing your idea space and how many things you're considering and shrinking your idea space to get something done is an unavoidable, but it's actually a very natural process of working with ideas. And the, the, as you're pointing out, the, the, the real lesson, the wisdom from people who have been doing creative work their whole lives or for their whole careers is just to accept that that process is natural. And if you're working to eliminate that kind of uncertainty, you're really unlikely to develop anything good. Yeah, yeah. It is, uh, uh, for some reason, we want it to be simple or we want it to be straightforward. And that's why we're, you know, we we almost lull ourselves into this myth that somehow it should be straightforward or otherwise I'm doing it wrong. Exactly. And, well, and you have a lot of stories. It, yeah. So, so if you want, share some stories from... Oh, I was just going to support what you were saying and that uh, it's just, it's a kind of wishful thinking and that we... We, we, we really like, really want to believe that it's just that straightforward, that we can invent or do something creative by following a plan. But that's a contradiction in terms because if it's – if all you have to do is follow some instructions, then how could that be creative? <laughs> there's, there's a certain paradox in – a logical paradox in that wish that we all have, which suggests that it's an emotional thing. It's this fantasy we have about what it takes to come up with a really good business idea or a really good idea for a book or a movie or anything. It's, it's, a, it's a very it's – it's, it's an emotional desire that we have for it to be that straightforward to get something. Yeah. And partly, maybe it is also because you and I are both engineers. I mean, you're a computer scientist. I'm a computer engineer from my past life. So we have a very uh, process-oriented way of looking at the world until uh, we realize that's not always – as straightforward as we like it to be. No, no. But the thing I learned in part as an engineer, which is related to this, is that I learned that in doing engineering projects, to figure something out that was challenging or that was going to be – if my ambition was to have an interesting result, unavoidably, I would have to do a fair amount of experimentation mm-hmm. where I'd have to try something out, see what the result was. I'd learn a little bit more and I'd experiment again. If I was doing something really simple, you know, a task – uh, or ordering a linked list or uh, doing something really, really simple, then of course there's some formula I could find to do it. But if I was doing something interesting, then I'd be forced to do some kind of dance where I'd, I'd try something out, try a couple things out, learn something, try more things out, and there'd be a little bit of a dance there. It just wasn't something that was taught to me directly as part of my computer science degree. I think it should have been, but it wasn't about how to get better at exploring ideas and making good use of that experimental time. But it was an unspoken thing when I worked on team projects for, as an engineer. We would invariably have to do this where we would invent things and, and try things out. It just wasn't strictly part of the curriculum, although I really think it should have been. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, as we go into this interview, I want to say that please, please, please use as many stories, metaphors, ideas from other sources, because I know your book is filled with stories from all these great thinkers, all these great creatives over the years. So please use them because stories stick best with everyone, with our audience as well. So Certainly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> another, another thing that is almost like uh, it's hard to comprehend is 
this gap that we have, the effort gap, for example, the the distance the distance between the idea. Somehow we have this notion that if I have a great idea, things will work out. But the truth is, there's a lot of hard work, a lot of mundane hard work, a lot of uh, grinding that has to be done, and there's this big gap that has to be crossed. And effort, effort is like that gap of effort is required. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, well, it's part of, another part of the fantasy, I suppose. Maybe that's why we want there to be a set of instructions for how to develop a successful company, because that would be a lot less effort than having to sort of figure that out for ourselves. And so the effort gap is this, uh, the, the classic story, we all have, well, we'll have drinks with friends or coffee, coffee with, uh, you know, someone that we know, and someone will come up with, we'll have, an, have a great idea for a business, that what, what, you know, Uber, Uber for cats, so you could have cats delivered to people who need to have a pet for the afternoon, and, and, and people are really excited when they find some idea. But then there's this gap of how much work is required, even if the idea is a really good one, even if the idea is a fantastic one, there's this some amount of work that has to be done, and often it's ordinary work, like filing for a business license or putting up a job ad to find an engineer. There's all this work that has to be done, regardless of how good the idea is. And for a lot of people who – you probably experience this a lot, given the audience for this podcast – of there are a lot of people who think they want to be an entrepreneur, and maybe they even have an idea for one, but once they start to realize how much work is required and how much they're going to have to sacrifice in order to even attempt the idea, they tend to spend more time just thinking up more ideas than actually do anything about them. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing for me, whenever I come across someone who tells me, often in my case, it's people say, I think I want to write a book. I want to write a book. What, what, what do I do? And I, I say, well, are you willing to spend probably – 500 hours, 600 hours working to write a book where you don't know for sure what the outcome is going to be. And they look, they give give me a look like this just seems like an absurd amount of commitment required for what they think is a good idea. But unfortunately, there's no, there's no magic way to skip past putting in that effort. So I call that an effort gap. And a lot of the gaps people experience who are trying to develop an idea, there's simply some hard work that has to be done to get that idea to the first step to make it into a prototype or uh, you know an MVP, uh, just a simple a simple prototype of something. They're not even willing to do that. And in that case, creativity is not is not the problem. The problem is commitment, and they're willing to sacrifice something to manifest the idea. Yeah, and the other gap that you talk about is the skills gap that sometimes we think, or not only think we know that our skills don't line up with what we're trying to accomplish, and uh, hence we we back off from that important thing that we're trying to accomplish. It can be a painful thing to discover that you have this idea for something, a business you want to you want to create. I'll just use Uber for cats since it seems ridiculous and be fun to see where this goes. But let's Uber for cats. I realize, oh great, yeah. And then you start to realize as you're putting in the work, you're writing a business plan, you're talking to people who are experts, you realize that there's some skill involved in actually moving cats around. You have to know about that you have to know something about keeping them healthy and keep them alive. And there's a skill you need to learn that you were ignorant of before. You never would have imagined that keeping cats healthy was actually something that required skill. And so it becomes not even a question of effort anymore. There's some skill you have to go and either learn or hire someone who has that skill. And that's, a, that's another kind of gap is that you simply might not have the talents you that are required. Or in some cases it could be, you don't have the technology required to make the idea 
possible. Yeah, and a lot of the times, like people mistake or people think that because I don't have that skill or talent, I shouldn't go after the dream. I mean, Michael Jordan, the classic example, right? He was cut from his high school basketball team because he was not good enough at the time. Absolutely, yeah. He he. Well, at least his, his, at least in his coach's estimation, he had a skill gap that he needed he needed to fill, and he did. And he he improved his skills, and he practiced harder. And we all know the story now that he became one of the greatest players in any sport of all time. But um, it's often a surprise for people who, in fields like um, in in creative fields like. Uh, musicians or or writers that they have an idea for a movie they come up with a science fiction theme they watch a movie they don't like it they come up with a better idea in their minds and then they start to realize that to actually put it down on paper and to convert that idea into a 60 page screenplay requires a set of skills that they have to go and learn and that is frustrating and it can be disappointing it's not nearly as exciting as coming up with the idea itself and they lose interest, and then and then they don't do anything about it until some other person in the world comes across the same idea, and they write a screenplay. It becomes a movie, and then the first person sees, they go, "I had that idea," mm-hmm. and there's a certain claim that they feel for that 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 notion, even though they weren't willing to put the work in to develop the idea and learn the skills themselves. Yeah, I like what Stephen Furtick. He said it, and I'll quote him. He said, the reason we struggle with insecurity is because we compare our behind-the-scenes with everyone else's highlight reel in the sense we're looking at what everyone has already accomplished or what we see on the outside, and we're comparing that with all the grind that we are doing day-to-day every freaking day. Absolutely, and and it's uh, in entrepreneurship, the classic thing is to look at a company like Apple or Google, these Fortune 500 companies now that have ridiculous amounts of net worth and they are huge players in the world marketplace and we we presume that somehow that just this was ordained to be that on the days those companies started that everyone knew how clear it was going to be that their path to success was going to be completely obvious this is another one of these myths of innovation and myths of success that if you go back and look at the early history of both of those companies there's tremendous uncertainty there's great gaps of skill that they needed and didn't have yet, and their success was predicated not just on coming up with an idea for something, but their willingness to recognize these gaps that they had and things they need to, needed to learn, skills they needed to learn in order to make their idea continue to be viable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, another story that I really enjoyed in the book was Ira Glass, what he said, which is the fact that we all start with a skill gap to begin with, and there's a space between what we like and what we're making. And the and I'd invite you to talk more about it. So, <laughs> I, sure, yeah, absolutely. So, Ira Glass is the host of a podcast. It's it's one, it's a radio show that's now one of the most popular podcasts called This American Life. And the it's a storytelling show. It's basically the craft of storytelling, it, it, and he tells stories of all different kinds. But the story that you're referring to that I quote in the book is he he's giving advice to people who want to, to make things. And he talks about this gap that people have, that their interest in wanting to be – wanting to tell stories or wanting to start a company is in part because they have really good taste. They recognize good businesses. They can see when other people do good work and they have good taste. But when they sit down to try to create something on their own, their skill is very poor, but their taste is still very good. 
So it's this gap between the notion they have, they have good judgment about what a good business looks like, but their ability to write a marketing plan or to come up with a proposal or, or to pitch, a, a, to, to pitch a, a venture capitalist on something, all those things are really poor relative to their taste and that most people give up way too early, that they feel that gap and they think there's something wrong. They imagine that Steve Jobs or um, Larry and Sergi or whoever their heroes are, they imagine that those people didn't have those gaps. But the truth is everyone has those gaps. Because until someone takes their idea and tries to run with it, they're not aware of how many other skills are required to be successful. So his advice was that this is normal, that it's natural, and that the commitment – if you're really passionate about your idea, you have to be committed enough to recognize these gaps and put in the effort to overcome them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The effort. And that's what he said. The only solution is to do a huge volume of work. Because huge volume of the, of work will allow you to close the gap. And that, I think, is where the line is between the amateurs and the pros. Absolutely. and, and it's But it's counterintuitive, though. It gets back to the opening thing we talked about, this wishful thing that many people feel. We want there to be a simple plan. We want it to be straightforward. And um, the willingness to do a lot of work and to, I'll, yeah, I'll start a small company with just me and a, and a friend and we'll see what happens and we'll learn from it. We'll do another one. That kind of commitment is not a simple plan. That, that there's, a, there's a lot of suffering is too negative a word, but there's a, lot of, um, the, 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 there's a lot of mileage you have to cover before you, you, before you build up momentum and confidence and skill. And that's just not – there are very few books on entrepreneurship that are sold on, uh, on the basis of – you, you will have to put in – you will have to fail 10 times before you have your first first feeling of success. It's not, that's, not, that's not as sellable an idea of the 10 steps to an instant billion-dollar company, which is fits, plays on all of our emotions and all of our wishful thoughts about how straightforward we, we want it to be to, to fulfill a dream that we have. Yeah, and all this, all this hard work, it requires a lot of discipline, right? It requires a lot of – hard work which is in some ways you know just not as fun and we know the creative greats whether it's van gogh or whether it's leonardo da vinci or who or whoever it is they had the discipline to make the sacrifices yeah yeah and and this this is not this is not a romantic thing i mean the there's a reason why in most movies about the invention or the beginning of a company that they skip over the hard parts, they skip over the, the person showing up every day and practicing sketching or, or for an engineer, the uh, Thomas Edison and the light bulb of here's another prototype for the light bulb, here's another prototype for the filament, showing up every day and not getting the results that they would become successful for. Most movies and stories skip over that because it's not entertaining. It's not fun to hear that. We, we want to we see the, the flash of insight we want to see the moment when everything changed. There's drama in that, and it's easy to be excited about that. But the reality of, in all those stories, in almost every single story where there was a flash of insight or some breakthrough moment, that moment was preceded by years of effort and was followed by years of effort to take that idea and that breakthrough moment and convert it into a viable product and a viable business. So it's, it's one of these things, it's one of these hard truths that – you won't find if you do your homework on the origination of any company, you won't find an example that transcends that. They're all the, fit the same pattern. That effort and discipline is required. 
And that commitment to an idea, which means there's going to be risk. If you're really committed to developing an idea for something, that's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you time where you're not going out at night with friends. It's going to cost you time, you can't, money you can't spend because you're spending it on building your business. There will be a, a, a trade-off, and it could be a great one. It could be entirely worthwhile and meaningful, but you'll have to sacrifice something to get something. Yeah, yeah. The cost, the cost. We, I mean, it sacrifice is so crucial because somehow people do not put sacrifice and discipline in the same bucket. But I, I you know, they go hand in hand. Without sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, so I get asked a lot about books. How do you, you know, want to write a book? Da, 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 and they say, how do you do it? You've written this is your seventh book. Like, how do you do it? And I people don't want to hear this, but it's the truth. I tell them it's the same way you would do it. I sit down. It takes me a few hundred hours to write a draft. There's nothing. Even though I've done it seven times, every book will require me to sit down for several hundred hours and write a draft, and then get feedback on it and write another draft. And there's no writer in history that didn't have to do the same thing. Hemingway, J.K. Rowling, everyone who has written a book, no matter how good they are, there's a gap of effort they have to fill to do their next thing. And the same thing is true for startup founders and entrepreneurs. Yes, they benefit from the experience they've had of starting more companies and going through that process. But because the next company they start is going to be a new venture, it's called a venture for a reason. You're going out into the unknown. You're going to be exploring. You're, you're, you're hoping to capitalize on some knowledge or insight that you have that your competitors don't. But that means there's some uncertainty there. That uncertainty is only going to be mitigated by the effort that you put in. Yeah, it's it's one of those um, beautiful things in life to me is once we accept that I once I accept that I have to make sacrifices in my life, making sacrifices becomes easier. But until that point. I'll keep on fighting. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's but it's natural too because we, we want to have our cake and eat it too. There's, there's a quote in the book, uh, Patti Smith, who's a famous poet and musician. I heard an interview with her on a podcast and she was talking about this notion of sacrifice and that it's just essential. All artists have to do it. All creators have to do it because this stuff is challenging to do. But what she said was that if you really believe in what you're doing – whether it's making art or making music or starting a company, if you really believe that this is what you want to do with your life, then it's what she called a happy sacrifice, that it's a sacrifice done where you, you, you're willing to make the trade-off. You, you realize this is more important than watching another two hours of TV every night, that you're willing to do it and you're happy to do it because this is what you want your life to be about. And even though it's a sacrifice in one sense, it's a commitment in another, that they're two, they're two sides of the same coin. And if you're really committed and passionate about an idea, it shouldn't be that hard to find a way to be disciplined enough to show up every day and put the effort in. Mm, yeah. This is awesome. And <clears throat> as we're talking about the ideation process and the sacrifices and the hard work and all that stuff, but sometimes I mean, it's also good as you as we talk about as you talk about in the book it's also good to take a break and the idea that sometimes those ideas come in the shower some come in the come when our conscious mind goes to idle right that's really important yeah there there's some good cognitive psychology research that's been done on this there's a there's a a, a professor named Mikhail Chiksentmehai 
which it took me a long time to figure out how to pronounce that correctly. <laughs> Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Uh, but, uh, yep. yeah, yeah. but he wrote a book. He's, he's known for his, the, the work he's done on flow and finding flow. These, these states of mind that we reach where time just passes by quickly, even though we're doing work. And he studied why does that happen and what, what can we do? What habits can we develop to, to make that happen more often and make it more valuable? And the key insight that he has it, or like I took from all, the, all of his books, the research that he has done is about – the process by which ideas develop and that creativity it hinges directly on our subconscious mind. We all know that when we dream at night, these stories play out that we are not consciously inventing, but obviously it's our minds that are generating those ideas and those stories and making those connections. Our subconscious mind is the part of our brain that's really good at making associations between things, at connecting things that initially might seem to have no relationship, but finding connections between them, which is exactly what we want to do when we're trying to come up with new and better ideas for things. So according to his research, there are a bunch of stages very loosely to call them stages, it's not that formal. It's not like a five-step process, but just to help explain it, we call them stages. And the first stage is usually someone you actually you have a problem, something you're trying to do, you're trying to make the design the UI for this prototype for something, and you go about it actively. You do some research on it, you start building something, but then at some point you probably get stuck. You reach a thing you can't figure out, and you put the project aside. And the next stage is the important one that he calls, or it's it's the most insightful one. He calls incubation, and this is where your conscious mind, you might not be thinking about that problem anymore. You may go for a walk. You may talk to friends, but your subconscious mind is still processing all the information that you've put into your brain, and it's also processing where you got stuck, and it's doing this for you in the background. It's like a computer processor with a background process. It's working in the background for you, and then at some point, if you treat your mind right, and your habits are good, at some point, all of a sudden, out of the blue, and a new insight will bubble up and just appear in your brain. And it feels like it comes out of nowhere. It feels like it's just the muse or it's something magic striking you from above, but it's really your subconscious mind that's bringing that back to you. And where the shower fits in, the whole thing, oh, I got a great ideas in the shower, is showers are one of the few places we have anymore in our daily lives, well, hopefully, hopefully in our daily lives, if your hygiene is good, mm-hmm. uh, that we... Um, that we're quiet and that we have no inputs. There's no television. There's no radio. We are able to relax and, make, and close our eyes and just focus on being in our bodies, which turns out to be the kind of conditions where it's much easier for our subconscious minds to give those suggestions back up to our conscious brains. So there's a long history. If you study the history of creative work, many creative people, artists and musicians and poets and writers and entrepreneurs – that they often have a daily habit of at some point during the day, they're, they're deliberately being idle. They're just going to sit and have coffee. They'll go for a walk in the park, walk their dog. Maybe they go for a run. But there's some habit they have that gives their body an, acti- uh, an activity that's more passive cognitively that allows those ideas to resurface. Yeah, this is so important, especially – as an entrepreneur, you, uh, sometimes there's an itch to do, do, do all the time. But that can or do or take in information or do one of those things where you feel like you're constantly being productive. But that itself can be counterproductive because, as you said, when the conscious is working all the time, we can never hear the much lower level, not lower level, but much um much less, much smaller volume of the subconscious in some ways. Yeah, it's like a whisper. It's like, hey, yeah. 
Yeah. Here's the solution. Yeah. <laughs> but if we're so busy consuming and reading and digesting and, and more, 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 it's that voice is just it, – it, we, we, we miss it. And uh, so uh, there's a chapter in the book about, about this and this history of how many creative people – this is part of their daily habit, which is easy to mistake as being lazy or being uh, aloof and, being, and not being committed. But the research, the scientific research supports this, that you need a regular part of your day or as close to a daily thing as possible where you're just your, – your cognitive mind is – your conscious mind is not focused on work anymore. Mm-hmm. And often it's physical. Uh, our brains work in a different mode when our bodies are moving. We're wired for motion. And so for a lot of people, I know a lot of writers and I know a lot of um, business development people who are busy, busy, busy all the time, but they go to the gym every day or mm-hmm. they go for a run in the morning. They have some daily time that they can clear their minds and um, do some – sometimes maybe you use that time also to do some conscious thinking. Your mind is free to think about anything, but also, also when you're running, your mind is free to, to your, for your mind to wander, and that's, uh, that opens the door. Absolutely. And back in the days, I used to think that um, – some things that I do not agree with anymore, like watching TV or watching, like doing some of these passive activities, they are not good because they're not allowing your subconscious to really be heard yet. What we need is a task negative mode, which is like we're not really act, engaging ourselves actively in any conscious cognitive task. We're actually doing something much more simple. And now my routine is much more on the on the side of workout, runs, hike, or even going on a drive sometimes to clear out my mind, but never yeah. to think that television is the way to go. <laughs> no, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. That we we assume it's we assume it's passive, but because there are people talking and there's a very there's something literal going on on every show and the laugh track, it's all designed to engage a very literal part of our brains. Also, what's worse now is these days people don't just watch. Just don't passively watch TV. We passively watch TV while we're also on a device. So we're like we're doing like triple overload of the wrong kind of activity at the same time. Yeah, yeah. It's all. It's here. Here. Here's the thing that's probably the the most effective for all of us at this point, which is to consciously carve out time for our work, but also to consciously time carve out time for non-work. <laughs> Or yeah. what I would call what you call leisure time, or not even leisure time, but more like rejuvenation time. Sure. Yeah. I think uh, I think there's something that the working world still hasn't caught up with yet. Some startups have, but the whole notion of the work week and the work day and that time is the ultimate measure of your productivity. I th- more smarter workplaces have realized that measuring time is the wrong thing that and even maybe measuring days off is the wrong thing that if people are doing creative work where they're inventing and they're trying to solve problems that have not been solved before or they're trying to solve them in more interesting ways that it's going to require more of their own intuition and managing that is different than managing a factory assembly line worker so I worked at Automatic for a year to write a book about what it was. Automatic's a company that makes WordPress.com, and I worked there for a year because of how fascinating their working culture is. They're a 100% remote company, and part of their policy around work is that they don't they don't track hours. It's, it's irrelevant to them. They pay attention to how, what your output is, but that's not dependent on how many hours you're working. Mm-hmm. They want every employee to be free to develop their own working habits 
that makes them the most productive, which for many employees includes how they manage their time off. Yeah, absolutely. So this is this is a lot of fun, Scott. We can keep on talking about these ideas because you have so many of them in the book. And that's why I would highly recommend our listeners to go grab the book when it comes out. So tell us all about it. Tell us where to find you. Tell us where to uh, when the book is coming out. Uh, sure. It, yeah, and all the absolutely. good stuff you're up to. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the book releases on March 15th, but it's available for pre-order on Kindle and print now. The title of the book is The Dance of the Possible. If you do a Google search for it, you'll get the Amazon links right there. My name is Scott Birkin, and my website's my name. It's Scott Birkin, B-E-R-K-U-N.com. And information on the book, this book, and all, all the previous ones are up there. There's also now a free sample chapter for the book that's up there as well, so you can sample the first chapter and see if, uh, if it lives up to its promise about being a mostly honest and completely irreverent guide to creative thinking. And uh, that should be enough information for anyone to get a hold of the book. Yep. It absolutely lives up to the promise. Uh, great work, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you very much, Scott. You're welcome. Thanks.